it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Babur Ilchi, Program Director for the Campaign for Uyghurs. That organization works to promote and advocate for the human rights and democratic freedoms for the Uyghurs and other Turkic people in East Turkestan. That region is also referred to in China as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. The Uyghurs are mostly Muslim, and Islam has played an important role in Uyghur culture and identity for centuries. The genocide is one of the worst examples of crimes against humanity that has happened in our lifetime. Right now, what's happening is that the Communist Chinese Party has put several million, upwards of three million Uyghurs in concentration camps. And at the same time, millions more are in prisons and also sent to these forced labor facilities. This is nothing less than genocide of an entire people. It's being carried out in these camps where the detainees and the victims are facing horrendous physical abuse and torture, uh, mental abuse, these brainwashing, you know, re-education courses, as they call it, where they're forced to renounce their identity, their faith, and praise the Communist Party and praise the president, Xi Jinping. As well, you know, there's a lot of systematic and mass sexual violence uh, particularly committed against Uyghur women. And that's just inside these concentration camps. Outside of it, life is not much better. It's surveillance on every corner. It's checkpoints. It's uh, biometric data gathering. And the removal of the autonomy of Uyghur women to choose to have children, um, to choose who to be married to, forced marriages, uh, forced abortions, IUDs, um, sterilizations, these are all commonplace. And in some areas, the Uyghur birth rate has dropped 50%. Wow. Uh, what we're seeing is nothing less than a genocide of the Uyghur people being carried out. Yeah. And this is uh, just so people are aware, this is in Western part of China. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So this area, um, China calls it the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And most Uyghurs refer to it as East Turkestan, which is a name that has a symbolic meaning because Uyghur people are indigenous to this area and their autonomy, which was promised by the CCP is, you know, you can see right now, it's clearly not given in any shape or form. Right. And so East Turkestan is the symbolic name for the homeland of the Uyghurs. 
Yeah. When did this happen? When when did the Chinese government start um, quote unquote re-educating um, people and and putting them into these camps and 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 when did the genocide start? Right. So I think the what we're seeing today, the start of it was around 2016. That is 2016, 2017 was around when the mass detention began and um, all the stuff that we're seeing now following. But I would argue that since the occupation in 1949, China has slowly carried out the degradation of Uyghur autonomy and removing uh, the ability to educate, removing the ability to practice faith, as well as taking apart the ability for Uyghur children to learn and uh, speak in the Uyghur language at school. And that is something that is you know, fundamental to a culture and to, a, course, to yeah. a language to survive. So what we're seeing has been happening since the beginning of occupation, but 2016 marks the ramp up to these extreme measures of genocide. What is the rationale that the Chinese government is is giving and and for for putting these measures in? Is it is it because of resources? Is it because uh, well, yeah, I guess g- give me the the rationale that they're giving to the public. So the you know the reason that they're giving is um, that Uyghurs are being educated. That these are you know vocational facilities where they're learning these life skills and learning how to get jobs and do all these you know such such pleasant nice things, but obviously we know that's not the reality. Of course. Um, they justify this as a security action by claiming the threat of Uyghur terrorism, Islamic terrorism, uh, and claiming that this is an all-time high and that violence is imminent in East Turkestan. And they use this as an excuse to militarize the region, to cr- create this Orwellian atmosphere where everyone is monitored at all times. The reality is that the Uyghurs are a different ethnic group. And because they're different, they're being targeted. There's the policy of a one China. And Uyghurs are directly, you know, an obstacle in the eyes of the CCP to accomplishing this. Yeah, it's 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 just uh, horrible. And, and you mentioned this earlier that um, it is considered a genocide. The U.S. government for many years has called it a genocide. The, the international community has called it a genocide and, and uh, you know, massive human human rights violations. Um, why is why is China still allowed to, to do this? Why is it still happening? Yeah. So we've seen numerous parliaments declaring this a genocide, uh, including Canada um, and in January of 2021, the State Department, uh, the U.S. State Department, declared that what was happening was a genocide. And there have been numerous reports released since by think tanks and independent researchers that have drawn the same conclusion. Um, even Campaign for Uyghurs in 2019 released a report with the evidence that was available at the time and came to the same conclusion that the Genocide Convention, which China you know, is a signatory of, is being violated. As to why China is still able to do these things, I think what we're seeing is um, hesitance on the international scale to condemn a country that is the second largest economy in the world, that is the bulk of manufacturing in the world. And they have spent a lot of time buying allies and buying silence. Their Belt and Road Initiative, which is this massive infrastructure project, uh, has effectively silenced the 
Muslim majority nations in Central Asia because of these uh, massive trade deals, infrastructure development, all these things. And these countries typically are in need of some level of investment, and they are willing to look the other way for that investment. Um, we're also seeing that a lot of brands are quiet about this, especially yeah. in regards to oil workforce labor. A lot of brands, whether intentionally or not, are complicit in this because 20% of the world's cotton supply comes from East Turkestan, one in five garments. So that means that a lot of the a lot of the clothing that we're wearing today has the has that potential to be have, to have been made or the cotton harvested by oil or forced labor, um, and there's just a lot of these these holds that China has on on businesses on governments that have made it hard to act. But we're we're seeing progress in this area. Yeah, are there specific brands that come to mind that are that that you know that um, are violating any rules? Yeah. I guess that if you. Take a look. There's um, a few reports released. One of the most recent ones was the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and it listed all these brands uh, specifically regarding garments. Um, Inditex has been a company that has been accused of complicity in oil workforce labor and have been um, have been a target of many many campaigns because of that. Uh, and Inditex is the parent company of Zara. And that's a huge, huge fast fashion manufacturer. So that's one of, I would say that's one of the biggest ones out there today. Um, other companies, you know, Nike is one that hasn't made the explicit uh, commitment through the uh, end oil or forced labor coalition to end their complicity there. The entire list of these companies you can find on endoilhorforcedlabor.org. And right. you, you just see that it's so widespread. It's so massive. Yeah, I I remember you know just whatever it was a year ago maybe when that uh, Disney movie Mulan uh, came out and they yeah. thanked the 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 local government there uh, yeah. and the credits and took a lot of flack for that. Um, yeah, um, they they thank the Turpan Security Bureau. <laughs> that, and sorry, who was that? The uh, Turpan is the is the uh, city, and they thank the Security Bureau of that city, which is you know responsible for a lot of these oppressive acts yeah. involved in the genocide. And, and the other part uh, about this region is that it's also very mineral rich, right? Like I think there's a lot of stuff that yeah. goes into our iPhones or, or computers or whatever that is being mined in that area. Is that is that another reason why China wants to have more control? Yeah. And so um, being able to access the these resources is definitely one of them. And the Belt and Road Initiative has several major trade paths that go straight through East Turkestan as well. Um, and actually, you're completely right. I mean, there have been reports coming out about the solar industry the, and how the polysilicon supply chain also has this huge prevalence of oil or forced labor. And you can see there's a few reports that have come out showing that oil ores are you know, mining quartz in the desert for this poly, polysilicon production. It is very pervasive, and the oil or genocide is quite profitable for the CCP, for the regime, because they're able to exploit uh, the oil or people like this. Yeah. Um, China's been also accused of targeting Muslim religious figures and banning religious practices in the region, and they're also destroying mosques and tombs. You know, it's really they're just trying to wipe out um, the entire culture, and, and as a result, I mean, you know, wipe out the 
Muslim people in that in that region. Is that right? Yeah, and so what we're seeing is that um, a lot of the crackdowns on Oilers began with these restrictions on religion as well. So children under 18 weren't allowed to go to the mosque. And then, you know, even simple things like having a beard were, would be enough to send you to these camps or, yeah. it, or uh, you know, having the Quran, having these the prayer rug, all these things would be violations that would make you suspicious. And they, they did begin by targeting these Uyghur leaders, community leaders, and a lot of these are imams, religious figures, you know, who would lead prayers in their neighborhood, and they were targeted for this because they were seen as this uh, threat to the consolidation of power because they have influence over the community. And they began, you know, replacing symbols in the mosque with CCP propaganda, and in some cases, just destroying mosques, and you, like you were saying, destroying... Um, these shrines or tombs that people would make, uh, would visit, you know, and completely erasing that part of the Oilers' culture and history and just yeah. getting rid of it all. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, the, the other really outrageous, I mean, you've alluded to this, but I just want to uh, you know, talk about it a little bit more, is you know, the, the sexual abuse and the forced sterilization of, of Uyghur women. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. The... BBC released this article back, I believe, in February, where they interviewed um, four people. Three of them were Uyghur survivors, and they detailed the horrific, horrific attacks of sexual violence and rape that they had been through while in these camps. All of this, you know, all the evidence with the eyewitness testimonies, Uyghur survivors, and reports that are being released uh, show that there is a level of sexual violence and mass rape in these camps, particularly targeted against Uyghur women. Not only that, but forced sterilizations. So Uyghur women are often given the choice of staying in the camps or having a, having a surgery that wow. would render them sterile. There have been reports of them being fed the, this medicine, this unknown medicine, and later being told that they were sterile. The, the use of IUDs, and forcing Uyghur women to wear them, and of course, and of course, uh, forced abortions. Just a while ago, I can't remember exactly when, but the, I believe it was the embassy in the United States, but like the Chinese embassy, they tweeted this thing about how China's policies for the Uyghurs have led Uyghur women to no longer be baby-making machines, which is just such a derogatory and disgusting thing to say. Right. And uh, I believe their account was suspended for that. Yeah. But you can see the attitude that the regime has towards Uyghurs and particularly Uyghur women and how that plays out in the policy goals that they've enacted. No doubt. Uh, you mentioned that some, you know, where people are either released or do they escape the camps? Like how, 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 do, how do we know what's going on on the ground here in America or in North America? Yeah. So there have been several sources of evidence. One of the bigger ones was 
these diplomatic cable leaks by China. And so somebody leaked them or they were intercepted. And they detailed exactly the communications that went on between, you know, CCP officials. A lot of it points and correlates directly with what's happening of, of these um of these policies being enacted of show, showing no mercy, striking hard, all these things. Um, secondly, reports that are being released would use um, publicly available data. At least they were publicly available. So you could go on to the Chinese government website and find these uh, demographic information, population statistics, and all these things. And you could you could create these conclusions or you could draw from this data to show that you know, Uyghur birth rates have dropped significantly wow. um, in some areas, like I was saying, 50%. And the natural growth rate of this area was zero. It flatlined in that in that period. You know, once the report is released, often this publicly information, publicly available information just disappears. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And third, like you were saying, and I was saying the um, Uyghur eyewitnesses. So the Uyghur Tribunal in London held a four-day hearing and during that period, they had t- dozens of expert witnesses and eyewitnesses, and they all testified to what was happening with their reports, with research, as well as people who were there speaking about what happened to them and what they saw happen to others. Yeah, I I think it first crossed my radar maybe, you know, two years, two, three years ago, where I saw people tweeting about it and family members who just up and disappeared and they haven't heard from them in months or years. Yeah. Um, how common is that? That's um, extremely common. I would say that every single Uyghur in the diaspora has a family member or family members that they are unable to get in contact with that are in these concentration camps that have been imprisoned, are in forced labor, or have uh, passed away as a result of the genocide. You have a personal connection? Yeah. So um, my grandfather, who was for a period of time, I think about four to six months, was um, sent to one of these camps. And after being released, a few months later, he uh, passed away from uh, from a heart attack. And, you know, that was something that was very difficult. Because we found out uh, through a Facebook post, 11 days after he passed, that information was relayed to people who are activists and that was shared publicly. And that is, um, that's how we found out, you know, like a family friend saw it and then phoned my mom and told her about it. And so that, that uncertainty, that cutoff of communication, that the not knowing whether your loved ones are safe, whether or not they've passed away and you just don't know, uh, that's something that every Uyghur deals with every single day. You know, like it's always in the back of our minds. And it's it's just something that we are now an additional pressure, an additional stress, a trauma of life that we're having to manage while still carrying out our day to day. Do you still have family back there? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, what is their, yeah, what's their experience like on a day to day basis? I wouldn't know. Uh, we have no. We we don't have any contact with them. Um, it's and it's infrequent the information that comes in. So, the last time I was there was 2015, and I went to my hometown, Khoten, 
which is this oasis city in the kind of like right on the edge of the desert. And it was just soldiers everywhere, police on every checkpoint, armored personnel carriers and armored SWAT cars, cameras on every street, like every 100, 200 meters. And every once in a while, you know, because I'm an Uyghur male and I was with my my dad and my uncles, we would be asked to step out of a car at a checkpoint, show an ID, all these things. And the fact that I have a Canadian passport, I'm a Canadian citizen, really kind of showed this contrast because younger Uyghur males aren't typically treated, you know, well, they're, they're regarded as very suspicious, as potentially dangerous. But as soon as I show them the ID, they're just like, okay, well, we can't do anything. Get them back in the car. That was only a f- couple years before the for the yeah. escalation and the mass detentions began. I mean, I just, I can't even imagine. And I mean, clearly there's connections that I think people make to what happened with the Holocaust. And um, is, is, is that a, a fair comparison? It's just, you know, in terms of concentration camps and re-education camps, is that, is that what people should be imagining in, in their heads? I think what we can say is that there are a lot of comparisons that are apt and that we should be making. And at the same time, there are differences that we need to to see. One of the big things that Campaign for Oilers is working on, in partnership with um, you know the Peace Project and the and the Jewish World Watch, is the Berlin Beijing Olympics, where this is exactly what we're aiming for to show the differences and the similarities between 1936 Berlin Summer Games, where Nazi Germany used that to great success to create propaganda and win over the world all while beginning the Holocaust and already at that point rounding up hundreds of thousands of people to put in concentration camps and Beijing 2022, which is coming up and with a genocide underway, we see that the plan is the same, you know, take this, take this game, take the games of the Olympics, which is supposed to represent human dignity, peace, international cooperation, so that they can whitewash their crimes and sanitize their reputation globally. And and uh, talk to me. Are you calling on a boycott of the games? Are you, uh, corporations to not sponsor? What what is what are you guys hoping to um, accomplish? So with the uh, Berlin Beijing Olympics, we're hoping to accomplish a diplomatic boycott of the games uh, by major Western countries, uh, such as you know the USA and Canada, UK, and you know CFU is also a part of. Uh, the No Beijing 2022 um, coalition, which calls for a total boycott. So we're, we need to see action. And we believe that a diplomatic boycott is the minimum of what these countries must do to accomplish this. And we're, we're fighting for that, but we're also aiming for a total boycott because letting a genocidal regime host these global games of peace, cooperation, and the human spirit is an affront to the Olympics. And it's a slap in the face to the human ideal. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Can Can you talk about the other work that you do um, for the program for uh, the campaign for Uyghurs? Yeah. So um, some of the other things that we're involved in the End Uyghur Forced Labor uh, Coalition. So we're working with uh, dozens of organizations to put an end to Uyghur forced labor. And so one of the big things in the U.S that's being aimed at is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which passed in the Senate and ideally will pass in the House soon. And these import bans are critical to hurting the CCP's wallet and making the Uyghur genocide unprofitable. 
in other areas, uh, we work with and try to support as best as we can Uyghur refugees uh, that are in Turkey. So just last December, we actually were able to fund the Hope House. So that's a place for Uyghur youth refugees and asylum seekers to have a shelter. We do our best to try to make sure that as well as raising awareness and advocating for the rights and freedoms of the Uyghur people and an end to the Uyghur genocide, we're trying to support and highlight the voices of Uyghurs who are survivors, who are suffering as a result of the genocide. Of course. Yeah. Where, where is the biggest, where are the bigger, bigger communities around the world for the refugee communities? You mentioned Turkey. Are there other pockets of, of them? In terms of the refugees, I would say Turkey is probably the largest concentration in any single place. Central Asia as well. These people who are who managed to you know escape before the closing of the borders and the complete shutdown and the genocide didn't have that many places to go. If there was just like a couple things that you want wanted Americans to do or people listening to this podcast to do, what what is it that that you would want them to take action on? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is take what you've learned here today and learn more. I mean, take take it in and explore it. You can visit our website, campaignforyogurs.org, and we have all this information. We have these resources that you can learn from. You can stay in touch with us um, and make sure that you're up to date. And you can tell people about this. If they don't know who the Uyghurs are, uh, and they may say Uyghurs, so if they say Uyghurs, then you know that they're talking about the Uyghurs, and make sure that you also explain what's happening to them and how they can help take action. And, you know, writing to your representative, your Congress congressional representative and asking them to support the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, asking them to support a boycott of the Beijing 2022 Olympics. These are all things that are critical because if representatives, if politicians know that people want them to take action on these global human rights issues, then they will. They'll realize, you know, they're elected. So they want your vote in this situation. And secondly, you can donate to Campaign for Uyghurs and you can just go to campaignforuyghurs.org slash donation and you can help us continue our work to advocate for the Uyghur people. You can help us support Uyghur refugees in Turkey and you can help us make sure that all these efforts will continue and that the Uyghur genocide comes to an end as soon as possible. I just want to quickly, I've been calling it Uyghur and you've been saying, what have you been saying? Uh, I've been saying Uyghur. So, so is this just the, my American way of saying it? Is it, is this the, the, I just want to make sure that I'm getting it right. And our we, listeners getting it. You know, is Uyghur, Uyghur is fine. Uyghur okay. is definitely acceptable. Uh, you know, a lot of people say Uyghur and that's kind of, for some reason, that's how the word Uyghur came to the West and has been pronounced since. Uh, but Uyghurs say Uyghur. I think one of the big things is the inability to to do the uh, r sound and so it yeah. it just translates to a flatter Uyghur. yeah amazing okay i'll have to work on that a, a little bit um how important was it that america made that first step of acknowledging that it was a genocide in retrospect it may have been a huge step in the snowball effect of things because what we saw was after the U.S. State Department declared this a genocide, 
um, the Canadian Parliament passed a motion declaring it a genocide. And then we saw, um, so th there's actually a decent amount of countries that I can't keep them all in my head. There's uh, the Netherlands uh, also passed one in, in their parliament, UK, Lithuania, the Czech Senate, Australia, no, sorry, Australia didn't, but New Zealand passed a motion citing concern of human rights abuses. There's been the snowball effect and we're seeing that it, maybe it took one person to move a step forward and other people would follow. And we saw that with the joint sanctions that were placed on the CCP. And I think we were seeing that uh, with the UFLPA, the Oil Force Labor Prevention Act, because now the Australian Senate just passed one that's similar to that. And I'm hoping Canada also has something similar, an import ban uh, that is stringent and more enforced and something that can be effectively used to prevent and end Uyghur forced labor. Yeah, no doubt. Um, what, why has it taken five years for the world to recognize what's going on? Yeah, that's a good question. I ask that a lot. I, I ask that <laughs> a lot. Um, and it frustrates me to think about how slow the international community has moved um, in regards to this. And I just, I wish I had an answer that was complete and logical and coherent. And I think one of the factors impacting it was, you know, China is a powerful country and the evidence at the time wasn't enough for people, I guess, you know, they were there, it was concrete, it was tangible, but people just felt, oh, maybe we need to see more. And the thing about that uh, is that, you know, while we wait for more evidence and more evidence and more evidence to finally take action, real people are suffering and real yeah. people are dying. And that has been something that has frustrated me is that in general, we are always too slow to act when necessary. Uh, and I think that the Uyghurs have been let down because of this. But I don't think it's too late. I think the action was slow and the action certainly came late, but we are seeing real steps being taken, real concrete steps. And um, I just want to say, I don't think it's too late. People shouldn't lose hope. People should continue fighting as we are. The hope is that we, we can end this Uyghur genocide and we can, we can stop it because every single day there are millions of people who are suffering under it. Barbara LG, um, thanks so much for joining American Muslim Project. Thank you. Thank you, Asad, for having me uh, and for you know taking your time. My conversation with Barbara was recorded in August of 2021. Please check out the website for the Campaign for Uyghurs. We'll have links to that in the show notes. If you can, donate and also support their boycott of the Beijing Olympics. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's show was produced and edited by Mark Inato, Lindsay Gamble, Isabel Havens, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. You can find us online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Yeah.